Wanting better governmental system is not new. It tends to be written in our DNA. And so they wanted a human king to set them free from the kingdom of Rome, but Christ comes to set us free from the kingdom of sin, from the domain of Satan, to reign over, reign in, not the, the throne at Jerusalem, but reign the throne of the souls of men. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12. I don't want us to forget where we've been either in our context or where we were last week. We did an Old Testament and a New Testament biblical theology of our slain, our worthy, our lamb king, the kingly lamb. Remember I said as we get into especially chapter 12, John is introducing to us the early stages of Jesus last week on earth. And we should see this as both an approach of the Lamb into Jerusalem to be slain, and in a sense, the first coming of the King. The entry into Jerusalem of the King. And it is that kingly entry that we study this morning. This is a famous, important, and significant passage and event in the life of Jesus Christ. There are actually very few events that all four of the gospel writers include, and this is, of course, one of them, because it marks the initial response of Jesus as king when he enters Jerusalem. But of course, John reminds us even from the very beginning of his book that he would come into his own and his own would not receive him. And so we're going to study this initial, seemingly positive reception of Jesus Christ this morning. The passage that we have in Christian tradition entitled, The Triumphal Entry. Julius Caesar was both loved and hated loved by his people because he was a great and powerful emperor who conquered many foes, hated by his government because he was viewed as a dictator. So when his government eventually had enough of this, they plotted to remove him. So he enters his throne room and Simber, a senator, a senator and one of the ones leading the rebel cause, approached Caesar with a petition. It was common that the, the 
emperor would receive petitions and declare whether or not this petition was worthy of his attention, worthy of the Senate's attention. But this petition was just a time filler. So Simba approached, handed Caesar the petition, grabbed him by the robe, and pulled him from the throne. And if you're familiar with what happened next, it's a gruesome scene. If you're not, a mob of about 25 senators, each with stereotypical Roman swords or daggers, murdered Julius Caesar, stabbing him more than 30 times. He was approached as a king, but murdered by those who claimed at one time to be his followers, his loyal followers. And in our text this morning, Jesus enters Jerusalem and is honored as king only in less than a week's time to be murdered by his followers. And so what seems like a beautiful passage is actually a very sad one. Let's read our text. John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 12. The next day the large crowd had come from the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that, was, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So when the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This morning I want to study from this passage the primary truth that to reject the sovereign authority of Christ is to reject the saving ability of Christ. To reject the sovereign authority of Christ is to reject the saving ability, or you might even say the saving opportunity of Christ. Well, we're given a little bit of context in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. You don't need to do too much figuring out of, of what the next day is. It's the day after this miraculous uh, resurrection of Lazarus that we've just seen, this famous resurrection of Lazarus. It was already profoundly impactful in Bethany and the areas surrounding Bethany. People were starting to hear it. But by the day after, you notice there's actually people, they're not just in Jerusalem hearing about it, they're in Jerusalem hearing about this sign, and then they're going to find Jesus, and they're going to see Lazarus for themselves so that they can validate this, so that they can see with their own eyes the, the evidence of the sign. So this is a, an incredibly impactful and important miracle, the seventh sign in the book of John of Jesus bring Lazarus back from the dead. We talked about that for several weeks uh, in chapter 11. And so it's the day after that, 
And the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, what feast? Well, remember, we're in Passover, and so people are going to be coming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to be the busiest it will be in a calendar year. Jerusalem is about to be filled up with people celebrating Passover. And so they've, they've taken a break from their, their daily Passover rituals to come find Jesus and come see Jesus and Lazarus with their own eyes. And they heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And the first thing that we see in verses 12 and 13 is a careless proclamation. A careless proclamation. Verse 12, so the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus coming to Jerusalem. So, so they took branches of palm trees. This idea of so gives us the idea that verse 13 is reliant on verse 12. They saw Jesus, they heard Jesus was coming, and in preparation, aware that Jesus is coming, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, either fanning him as he walked by with the palm trees or casting the palm trees on the ground in recognition and in honor, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And if you read the Bible for the first time and you have no idea what, and you started in John and you had no idea what happened in the life of Christ and in the life of the people of Israel in the evolution of Jesus' ministry, in the full cycle of Jesus' ministry, you would say, that's awesome, praise God. They just, they just confessed Messiah, not just King. They just confessed Messiah. You say, how do you know that? They admitted that he came from the Lord which is something they've been so reluctant to do up until this point. They constantly haven't been asking him in the book of John. I know you've been paying attention. Where do you come from? Tell us where you come from. And he says, I come from above. I come from the Father. I can do nothing except the Father allows me, permits me. I, I say what I say uh, because the Father tells me. I do what I do in, in, the, in the power of the Father and for the Father's sake. I come from the Father. And they just keep asking him, but this time they acknowledge he comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But this is a short-lived profession of Christ's identity. They seem sincere. And one way in which they seem sincere is just the simple act of the using of palm branches. This is not the first time palm branches have been cast at the foot of someone the Jews believe to be important. In 141 B.C., Simon the Maccabee is welcomed back into Jerusalem with palm branches after he drives out the Syrian army. He's recognized as victor. He's recognized as, as powerful and conqueror. Important. And as I said, it almost seems like they acknowledge him as Messiah. So what what is what's at the heart of their insincerity it's that as we've said throughout the book and as we've seen throughout the book they wanted a different jesus and even in this proclamation even when it seems like they're affirming who jesus is they're working off an improper definition because what did these people want from Jesus? What did these people want from the King of Israel? What did these people want from Messiah? They did want to be set free. But they wanted to be set free from, from a, a human standpoint, from oppression to Rome. Think about how many times the, Israel, the people of Israel have known enslavement. Obviously, Egypt comes to mind first, but 
Then we talk about Babylon and the exile and Persia constantly enslaved. And so, and so here's, here's, here we are in, in the first century and here comes this, this Christ who has proven his sufficient and sovereign and authoritative power. He can bring people back from the dead who were in the tomb for four days. This must be the king. And what he's going to do is he's going to walk into, into the emperor's front door and he's going to knock down the walls and he's going to proclaim himself king and he's going to set us free and Rome will know suffering. And that's what they want from Jesus. Wanting better governmental system is not new. It tends to be written in our DNA. And so they wanted a human king to set them free from the kingdom of Rome but Christ comes to set us free from the kingdom of sin from the domain of Satan to reign over reign in not the, the throne at Jerusalem but reign the throne of the souls of men to set them free from darkness to set them free from sin and to release them into freedom in Christ. So there's a careless proclamation. This is so, this is heartbreaking. You see, why do you say this? Because in the commotion, in, in everyone being so amped up about this, in the noise, in the sound, in the celebration, in the shouting of the streets, Jesus knows. And so what we view as triumph, what they saw as triumph, Jesus must have known as tearful. What they saw as an act of power, Jesus knew, would lead to an act of immense pain. And what they saw as salvation from Rome, Jesus was fully aware, would lead to to suffering like no human to establish and secure the salvation of sinners. So this is a careless proclamation. But even referencing to where we were last week and now we find it immediately in the passage, there's a fulfillment of a prophecy and so we secondly find in this, te this text a kingly prediction. A kingly prediction. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Matthew and Luke give us a few more details about what takes place here. Jesus tells the disciples to go in, find a colt. If anyone has any questions, say, hey, we're giving it for the Lord. And, and so he, he sits on this, this young donkey, and he enters the town. So Jesus, even, again, from Matthew and Luke's account, initiates this fulfillment of Scripture. He knows this needs to take place, of course. And in this prediction, we, we find two things. We find a king who is hopeful, a hopeful king. Now, here's another thing that's so sad about this passage. We understand now as redeemed sinners, as forgiven sinners, we understand how significant this was for Jesus entering the, 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 
the, the streets of Jerusalem and, and, and being acknowledged as Messiah, and we know it as true salvation. We understand the hope that Jesus is literally bringing with himself as himself into the streets of Jerusalem. We get it. And though they understood a kind of hope that they liked, that they'd be set free from Rome, even what they were hoping in was limited because it is far better to be forgiven of our sins and live in a, in a culture like Rome than to die in oppression to Satan and enslavement to sin. And so they saw Jesus as their Messiah in the way that they understood Messiah, but the way that they understood Messiah wouldn't even bring them true hope. It's just physical freedom, not spiritual. They don't have to fear soldiers anymore when what they should be fearing is the sin that damns them. But we who see Jesus as the New Testament, as the Scriptures reveal Him to us, the sovereign saving King, understand that as He enters Jerusalem and He's being celebrated by people who would call for His murder, we understand that He's bringing with Him as Himself the living hope. The only hope. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. The first line of the prophecy quoted by John. This king will free you from what? Fear. Don't be afraid. Your king's coming. And it's not that you should be afraid of, of, of the emperor. And it's not that you should be afraid of the centurion. It's that you should be afraid of yourself. Because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. And I need to be set free in here before I'm set free governmentally. But this king who's coming will set your hearts free. Will wash those deceitful and desperately wicked hearts clean by his blood. So we first of all see a hopeful king and then secondly we find a humble king. Behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. You go back to this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that we talked about last week. Verse 14 says he is humble. He's humble. Now this is this is first of all uh, seemingly astounding to to anyone who thinks of kingly authority, right? So when they read, when they hear about this king who's coming and he's going to have a lowly opinion of himself, not the opinion everyone else has for him because he's the king. And how do you think of the king? You think of the king as better than everybody, as more important than everybody. And Jesus comes thinking of himself in a way that is lowly and selfish, selfless and humble. So even in their view of an authoritarian figure, it didn't match up with Jesus Christ. And at times, our view of an authoritarian, powerful figure doesn't match up with Jesus Christ. Because his strength was not in the way that he carried himself, or his confidence, or that he towered over everyone else. Remember what Isaiah says? 
he grew as a young plant, and he had no form of comeliness or desire that, or, or any form of comeliness or beauty that we should desire him. Very unlike Saul, who stood over everybody else, and David, who was powerful, and the scriptures say, handsome. This humble king comes unlike anyone that you've ever thought of because he's going to do something that you couldn't believe. And that while we were more sinful than we could have dared to believe, this Savior, this humble king, enters and offers hope that almost seems too good to be true. Do you know what Paul says about the humility of Jesus in Philippians 2? It's an astounding passage. Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? Don't look on everyone else's interests, or don't look on your own interests, but also the interests of others. Don't think of yourself more highly than ought to. There's another way that Romans, he says it, Paul says it in Romans 12. Have this mind in yourself, who Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be taken for himself. He didn't think he could just clutch his position in God. He, he respected his position and who he was in the Trinity. He didn't feel like he could just take his authority as Jesus Christ. Those in the form of God, did not he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a what? servant and was made in likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself what paul does here is he, he purposefully gives us this downward trajectory in the passage so that we would see how jesus literally came down and he got lower and lower and lower the form of god he became likeness of men likeness of many came he became like a servant and being a servant he died and dying he was crucified like a criminal but verse 6 he didn't feel like he should just take his divinity essentially what this means is that Jesus was humble about being God and I'm not even humble about being human. Sometimes you're not either. Maybe that's just me. But this humble king... And you say, why is this so significant? Because in Jesus not looking on his own interests, he looked on yours. And you know what he looked when he saw? A slave to sin. A debtor who could not buy back with any good deed or amount of good deed our own freedom. A slave with chains held by Satan. That's what he saw when he looked on my needs. And not looking upon his own, he says, Father, I will drink this cup if it's your will. Nevertheless, your will be done.
Jesus enters as the king. Jesus enters as the humble king to die. And just as is consistent with John, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've been paying, I hope you've been paying attention really specifically to the messages. And, and, if, and if you've been paying attention really specifically, one of the things that you see is John will constantly do this thing where we go from a statement of truth or an event, and then we're going to look at human responses. Have you noticed that? He, he constantly does this. Here's a statement that you should believe, or here's a statement from Jesus Christ, or here's an event, and then here's how people responded to it. Why does he do that? Because these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life. Jesus or John wants your response to be belief. So he's pointing out all the other ways that you shouldn't respond. Here's the bad ways that you respond. The only true good one is belief. So thirdly, there's some confused people. There's a careless proclamation, a kingly prediction, and some confused people. Verse 16, the, the disciples are the most obvious one. We have a few groups here. His disciples did not understand these things at first. What things? The, the, the whole event that just took place, the casting of palms, the, the Jesus entering Jerusalem, being, being Hosanna, which means salvation is here. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. So now we've got the disciples, then we've got the crowd, and then we've got the Pharisees. The, the, the typical three. So his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when was that? When Jesus had was, was gone, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this is one of those things. Do you, do you know how maybe something may happen to you, or maybe you have a conversation with someone, and it wasn't really clicking when you had the conversation, but you did the, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And you did the nod like you understood. Thank, thank you for that. And then a few days later, it's like, oh, that's what my wife meant. Right? Or someone gives you directions and you're not quite sure. And there's two kinds of people who give directions, right? There's the people who say, hey, you're going to go down a county road, whatever. And you take a right on this street and that lane. And then there's the kind of people who are like, hey, there's Dairy Queen. Right? You go to Dairy Queen and then... And as you're going there, things start to make sense because perspective comes along as you're going. And then when you get to your destination, you actually understood. The light bulbs didn't come on for the disciples very often while Jesus was with them. Okay, That's why they're always asking silly questions. And there's some really silly things the disciples ask. Because the light bulbs weren't coming on. But when Jesus is away from them and the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, comes upon them, light bulbs. And I'm envious of the disciples in that way. You say, why? Because they've just spent literally two years with being discipled by Jesus Christ. And there's a lot, and John says this, there's a lot that Jesus says, said and did that we don't have in the scriptures. There's two years of data we don't have. That means when the Holy Spirit comes along and he helps them understand, I mean, they're putting things together left and right. An incredible doctrine about Christ, incredible Old Testament theology just starts to come alive for them. And so in that way, I envy them. But they didn't get this at first. Jesus is glorified, he ascends, and then, oh, he's the king from Zechariah. 
the scriptures don't fail, do they? But then we've got the crowd. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. All right, so now we've got the crowd that was present, okay? So we've got the disciples who didn't understand and then eventually did. And you can bet they praised, they gave glory to God in their hearts when they understood that he was the humble king from Zechariah. And then, and then we've got the crowd that was present when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And what are they doing? Continuing to bear witness, continuing to tell people. Uh, what did the crowd do? You remember from, from a few uh, messages ago, the crowd that was present when, when Lazarus was brought back from the dead? What does John say they did? Most of them believed. Most of them believed. I mean, how could you not? Right? But some of them didn't. Okay? Which, in the end, Christ will literally be here and some will still reject him. Okay? So, there are those who are going to reject Jesus. Period. But now there's a crowd that is coming. So we've got actually two crowds in this passage. One who was there and they're talking about, I mean, they're saying, you should, you should, you should have seen what happened. You should have seen what happened. This was amazing. He was in the, he was in the tomb for four days and he came out. He was, he was alive. And, and, and so they're bearing witness. They're telling. These are speaking witnesses. But then there's crowds that are coming. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So this, again, the sign is growing in popularity. The message, the word is getting out. And I don't think we should believe that the crowd that is coming, all of them believed. You say, why? Because those who were there for just the sideshow to see Jesus do neat things in the book of John, their belief wanes. It's a temporary belief. It's not permanent. They like the things that Jesus offers them. But when Jesus says, lay down your life to be a disciple, eh, that's too much. Sound like Christianity today? Right? Sound like Christianity today? I like that Jesus offers me hope and peace and I've got these bad things I want to stop doing because I'm tired of stop, I'm not doing bad, I'm tired of doing bad things. So I'll submit to Jesus if he'll help me with these things. But, I mean, really giving my life and laying down my life and that's hard. I'll follow Jesus if I can have X, Y, and Z. And that's what we see throughout the book of John. People who appreciate the sentiment of Jesus, people who appreciate what Jesus offers rather than the, what they are willing to offer him completely. And then we've got the stereotypical bad guys in the book of John. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You say, what do they mean when they say you're gaining nothing? Well, remember the disciples, the Pharisees have a goal. What's their goal? Kill Jesus. We know this from the end of chapter 11. Who else did they want to kill? Lazarus. Because we have to wipe out all the evidence, right? And so the Pharisees are now annoyed, saying to one another, hey, we've not made any progress in our plan. We've not gained any ground. People are still believing in him. People are still following him following him. Why? Because they're still threatened by him. Their Jewish system is still threatened by him. We talked about how Jesus threatens the system of religion by offering us grace. And so now we have these human responses to this king 
of this King Jesus, this humble King who enters and offers hope. Now I want to offer one, end with one way of application. It is possible to make a careless proclamation and confession of Jesus Christ ourselves. And I'm afraid churches are full of people, full of people, who are kind of a combination of those who get really excited about Jesus and those who only want what Jesus can offer them. So they're, for, they're pushed into some decision or they feel bad in some way and so they want to feel better and they'll say, I don't, want, I don't want punishment or I don't want whatever and so I'll take Jesus, sure, I'll take Jesus, I'll say those words, I'll believe that thing and we just say these careless words without really believing them and we say we're sorry and we, sorry is not the same thing as repentance. You can say sorry a hundred times but if you keep doing the same thing, it's not repentance. Repentance means, I'm sorry, let's do something different. Turning, stop the sin, or at least a desire to stop the sin. And so I think churches are full of people who said words. They seem godly, and so they want to keep up this appearance. What does Jesus say? There will be people, or the disciples say, there will be people who cast out devils, who did the work of Christ, who did religious things, who seemed godly even. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Ever. Not like at one time I did, and then you straight. I never knew you. And I'm afraid churches prove that verse. Praise God, I don't think that's characteristic of our ministry. But let's be warned. Let's be warned. And in conclusion, I just want you to get the full impact of this scene because I think it's what John, I think John wants us to understand this. Jesus has spent two years town after town, doing what Mark tells us, he healed everyone in the town to the point where he's exhausted. Christ serves these people. He may walk the streets of Jerusalem and see someone from a town in Judea that he gave sight, that he healed their child. He may see them waving a palm branch saying Hosanna, and he knows that that person is going to call for his death. And the song of victory fills the air, but it is fake, phony, white noise. But he still died for them. Knowing he would be rejected knowing that right now they say Hosanna, and in six days they'll say crucify it. He enters this scene with perfect compassion for every heart.
And so though this king was rejected by them, we who are the believing rejoice. And we say amen. Let's rejoice in our king by living for him. 